In what I'm about to read, um, I'm just trying to unpack one concept uh, very, very slowly. So if at any point in time you find yourself getting lost, I'm going to try to return to the same thing over and over. It's, it's a difficult concept to inter eternalize because I'm talking about an eternal, infinite God. But I'll try to repeat myself a lot and hopefully the it'll land. <laughs> That's the hope. All right, Pr please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want, to, um, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are drifting through outer space. You can close your eyes if it helps you to imagine this scene. You're drifting through outer space. As you drift through outer space, you encounter a massive being of pure, shimmering light, larger than a mountain, larger than a mountain range, larger than a country, larger than a planet. This being has no discernible gender, and it doesn't so much speak as it communicates directly inside of your head. Its form is not stable. It can disperse and reappear anywhere at any time, even without the knowledge of anyone around it. It can even make itself appear in more than one place at once. It can make itself large, and it can make itself small. You come to find out as you are talking with this being that it is so powerful that it has come to know everything about our universe and about human history, every single thing. It periodically intervenes in human history and it directs us down a path that it sees as good. It has even directed the process of evolution for all living creatures on Earth and will continue to do so long into the future. Not only this, but it has been in existence longer than anything else we know. It existed long before our planet, our solar system, our galaxy. Let's say for a moment that such a being exists. What should we call it? You could use many names for this thing, and many cultures have called beings like this thing many different things. But one thing that we absolutely could not and must not call this thing is God. That would be wrong. Just to recap, this thing that I'm talking about that you encounter in space, it, has more powerful than, it is more powerful than anything else in the universe. It has the ability to come to know anything in our universe, and it can be present anywhere within our universe, and still it wouldn't be proper to call this thing God. That's a contention that I, I want to try to unpack in this sermon. Imagine still that this thing that you've run into in outer space was responsible for the Big Bang. It was there at the moment of the creation of all things in the cosmos, outside of itself. And it was the immediate cause of the event that got everything in this universe rolling. 
it would still not make sense to call this thing God. Some Greek philosophers had a term for this thing. Uh, they called it a demiurge or an archon. Uh, the peoples of the world who worshipped various gods might call this thing one of the little g gods in their pantheon, like Zeus or Bast or Shiva or Odin. But it wouldn't be proper in any of those belief systems to identify this thing that we've encountered in outer space with the one true God. And people the world over have had good reasons for differentiating between God and this thing. There's a set of philosophical problems concerning the existence of our universe that this thing, this little g God, this demiurge, this archon, those might be unfamiliar terms, so in the rest of this sermon, I'm just going to call this guy Bob. So, there are philosophical problems concerning the existence of our universe that Bob doesn't solve. That is why any monotheistic belief system, any belief system that has believed in the one true God, uh, has cropped up in pretty much every human culture, even cultures with a pantheon of many little g-gods that appear in their stories. Thoughtful human beings have realized that our existence requires an explanation that Ra or Jupiter or Vishnu cannot provide. And so Socrates and Plato became monotheists. They came to believe in the one true God, even though they grew up in a culture that told stories about the many little g-gods. The same is true for many of the Hindu sages who became believers in the one true God, despite the stories in Hindu religious texts about many little g gods. These individuals re realized that you needed something more to explain the existence of our universe. This is something I try to impress on my students in my theology classes all the time. See, the difference between being something called a monotheist and the difference between something being something called a polytheist isn't just a difference in counting how many things that we, we say are little g-gods. God with the uppercase g and the gods with a lowercase g are terms used to describe two altogether different realities, two altogether different classes of thing. And that's true whether you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, a monotheistic Hindu, or if you're a philosophical monotheist like Socrates. There's a helpful quotation explaining the difference by a theologian by the name of Brad Gregory. He writes this, God is not a highest, noblest, or most powerful entity within the universe. Divine by virtue of being comparatively greatest, the greatest of all things. Rather, God is radically distinct from the universe as a whole, which God did not fashion by ordering anything that already existed, but rather creating it all out of nothing. God's creative action proceeded neither by necessity nor by chance, but from God's deliberate love. And as love, God's, God constantly sustains the world through God's intimate and providential care. Though God is radically transcendent and other than creation, 
God is sovereignly present to and acts in and through it. There is no outside to creation, spatially or temporally, nor is any part of creation independent of God or capable of existing independently of God. That's a lot to unpack, so again, I'll try to uh, call attention to some things. This thing that we encountered in our thought experiment, Bob. Um, Bob's a thing in creation. That's why Bob is not God. And creation could go on without Bob. If Bob disappears, creation could kind of go on by itself. God is not a thing in creation, out there somewhere in the ether. And creation cannot go on without God. God is not Bob. God is beyond even Bob's comprehension. Christian theologians have used many different, different descriptions to try to get at the difference between these two things. One common way of putting it is to say that God is not a being among beings. Instead, God is being itself, oftentimes with a capital B. Uh, hence a description here given by David Bentley Hart. God is the one infinite source of everything that is, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, uncreated, uncaused, perfectly transcendent of all things, and for that reason, absolutely imminent to all things. God so understood is not something posed over and against our universe, in addition to it, nor is God the universe itself. God is not a being, at least not in the sense that a tree, a shoemaker, or a little g-god is a being. God is not one more object in the inventory of things that are, or any sort of discrete object at all. Rather, all things that receive their being continuously, all things that exist, receive their being continuously from God, who is the infinite wellspring of all that is, in whom all things live and move and have their being. In one sense, God is beyond being, if by being one means the totality of discrete and finite things. In another sense, God is being itself, in that God is the inexhaustible source of all reality, the absolute upon which the contingent is always utterly dependent, the unity and simplicity that underlies and sustains the diversity of finite and composite things. Infinite being, infinite consciousness, infinite bliss, from whom we are, by whom we know and are known, and in whom we find our only true consummation. That is a description of God. Now that's a lot to unpack again. But here are a few noteworthy things to call attention to. First, again, Bob doesn't have the characteristics that Hart's talking about here. Bob isn't transcendent of our universe at all. He's a thing in it. He exists within it. Furthermore, the universe could go on without him. Second, in any religion that believes in the one true God, God is typically seen as the answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? I think all of us on some basic level understand this question, why is there something 
rather than nothing. We look around the universe around us and we see only things that are contingent. Things that don't exist at some point, that come into existence and then go out of existence again. This is true for human beings, it's true for anything in the animal kingdom, it's true for trees, it's true for planets, it's true for stars. We realize that it could have been the case that nothing had ever come to exist at all, as we look around all, all of this contingency. No earth, no sun, no moon, no stars, no life on earth at all, or in the universe at all. In a universe pervaded by fragility and death, the profound order and diversity of life in creation really needs an explanation. And by this I mean, we need more than just an explanation of how the universe began. We need more than just a God of the gaps argument that some uh, of the processes of evolution are irreducibly complex and need a divine intervening hand to keep them going. We need an explanation of how the universe has any order at all. Here again, David Bentley Hart is helpful when he responds to Stephen Hawking, who thought that an infinite number of universes, which is oftentimes called multiverse theory, does away with any need for God. Here's Hart's quote. By God, Hawking means only a demiurge, a bob. Coming after the law of gravity, but before the present universe, whose job was to nail together all the boards and mortar together all the bricks of our current universe. So Hawking naturally concludes that such a being would be unnecessary if there was some prior set of laws that would permit the spontaneous generation of any and all universes. It never crosses his mind that the question of creation might concern the very possibility of existence as such, not only of this universe, but of all the laws and physical conditions that produced it, or that the concept of God might concern a reality not prior in time to this or that world, but logically and necessarily prior to all worlds, all physical laws, all quantum events, and even all possibilities of all laws and events. That's the end of the quote. What Hart is calling attention to is the fact that even the ordering of the laws that govern the universe need explaining, for they too are contingent. They can pass away. There's a theory out there that our universe will end in what is called heat death, and it implicitly recognizes this. Heat death, if I'm understanding it correctly, refers to a state where the universe reaches what's called thermodynamic equilibrium, which makes all work impossible. Basically, the laws of thermodynamics cease to operate in a particular way. So even they are contingent. That brings us to a third thing about the definition I've given of God above. Most modern folks that express disbelief in God are actually expressing disbelief in Bob. They don't believe in a being of light that exists in outer space that periodically intervenes in human affairs. Uh, this is true of most of the new atheists who became really popular a couple decades ago. They're not exactly new anymore. Uh, and this is true of the most noteworthy atheists who ever left our church. 
Uh, he has rejected the, the existence of Bob, not specifically the existence of God. But belief in Bob has nothing to do with belief or disbelief in God. The question of God's existence is largely not asked. The fourth thing to note in the definition of God that I gave earlier is that when we say that God created the universe, we don't mean that in the same sense that we say a carpenter creates a table or somebody created this lectern. When somebody created this lectern, they took pre-existing wood, or whatever this thing is made of, uh, and they cut it, shaped it, varnished it, cast it in a particular, uh, in a particular shape. Uh, God doesn't create and animate our universe out of pre-existing material in the same way, uh, which is why the clockmaker analogy for God's creation that was real popular during the 18th and 19th centuries is real problematic. A better analogy, I think, comes from ancient Christian theologians. They described creation as occurring because the members of the Trinity have so much love for one another, and it was so limitless and so boundless that it overflows from them like a cup being filled past its rim. And when that love spills out of that cup, the result is the creation and the animation of everything that we know in this universe. All things not only come from God, they find their motion in God. They find their change, their being, and their growth in God. The fifth thing here to note in the definition of God that I gave earlier is that while God might be transcendent in all religions that believe in God, with a capital G, that just means that God is utterly unlike anything that we see, utterly unlike anything in the universe, and that God doesn't depend on anything in creation to go on. What transcendence does not mean is that God is literally above us or is distant from us in any way, shape, or form. It actually means the reverse. Because God is transcendent, God is imminent. Because God is not spatially located like we are, God is immediate to all things at all times, and all things are immediate to God. Again, there is no outside to creation which describes the place where God dwells apart from us. All things move and live and have their being in God, to quote Acts 17, 28 again. In fact, God is even closer to us than we are to ourselves. God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. The difficulty, the distance that we feel from God is actually a difficulty that exists on our side of the relationship. As spatially located creatures, we can experience distance even from ourselves. We can experience things like dissociation, where we no longer identify with ourselves or at the very least our, phys our own physical bodies. We can be unaware of what is going on in our bodies. 
we can be unaware of even what our motivations are for doing something that we do. We can experience all these forms of distance even from ourselves. But this is not the case with God. To God, all things are immediate, including every aspect of, uh, of us. Hence Jesus' statement in Luke 12, 7, that God knows the numbers of hairs on your head, knowledge that typically you and I don't have of ourselves. A sixth thing to note in the definition of God that I've given here is that God is beyond full human comprehension and description. So if you're struggling, that's why. I mean, this is why describing God is so difficult. Something like Bob isn't beyond human comprehension and description. We can get what Bob is. We can comprehend him. He's, a really, he's really powerful and he's really big, but we understand what his power is and we understand that he's really big. You could say the same thing about Bast. You could say the same thing about Ganesh. You could say the same thing about Zeus. You could even say the same thing about Cthulhu and the elder gods in H.P. Lovecraft stories. Uh, those things aren't beyond comprehension or description. They're basically just big cosmic monsters with all due respect to Lovecraft himself. God, on the other hand, is a lot harder to comprehend. In fact, this is explicitly recognized in a lot of Christian traditions. The whole point of going to a prayer service or a worship service like this one uh, in some traditions is to sit in contemplation of that infinite God, that God that is infinite, simple, uncaused, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. And the reason why you need to set aside space to contemplate this God is because we can, as human beings, in various ways, start to slip from thinking and speaking about God to thinking and speaking about Bob. The Hebrew Bible oftentimes goes to great lengths to help us to break out of this tendency presenting us with the helpfully bizarre manifestations of God or God's intermediaries that pull us away from thinking about Bob and push us to think about God. I asked for two of those passages to be read earlier, Exodus 3 and 1 Kings 19. In Exodus 3, the messenger of the Lord, which, by the way, Mark, I appreciated the, the translation that you used because it called this thing a messenger of God and not an angel. An angel oftentimes conjures up dude in a robe with wings imagery, but angel in Hebrew just means messenger. That's all it means. But in Exodus 3, the, the, the messenger of the Lord speaks to Moses from a burning bush a bush which is on fire, and yet the flames do not consume it. Note the presence of mediators here and of their oddness. It's a messenger of God speaking from a bush. Messengers of God sit in this really strange place in the Hebrew Bible. Even in Exodus 3, it vacillates between saying that God spoke these words to Moses and that the messenger of God spoke these words to Moses. 
There's the recognition that we as human beings need something in space to interact with, but also the recognition that that something cannot be God in God's fullness. At best, it could only be a manifestation or a mediator. It isn't the full picture of who or what God is. Perhaps that's why the manifestation that Moses sees features a bush that is on fire in a distinctly unnatural way. There's very little possibility that after this encounter you would walk away from it thinking that the next bush you run into is the same thing as the divine source of all that is. Whatever the reason for the fact that it's a bush, the fact remains. You need mediation to talk to this God. You can't just converse with this God in the same way that you could with a person. Of course, in the New Testament, there is the recognition that this God becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, but that entails a movement, a becoming, an emptying, to use the language of Philippians. All of those are analogies, of course, but they're really the best that we can do. Back to the story about the burning bush, we can't leave this story behind without talking about the giving of the divine name. When Moses asks, who shall I say has sent me, God answers in Hebrew, Echyeh asher Echyeh, often translated, I am who I am. It's actually future tense, however, so it could be translated, I will be who I will be, or I will become who I will become, or something like that. Either way, taken at face value, this statement isn't really all that descriptive. Literally anyone can say, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I could say it, and it would be true of me, and it would be correct. But that's kind of the point. What more can you say? The name that God gives points to the fact that this God is beyond human description. Our descriptions are inadequate. They fail. Or they grasp at something, but don't entirely get the whole of it. It also calls to attention that this God is not so much a being as being itself. In 1 Kings 19, the vision of God that Elijah experiences calls attention to the fact that when we talk about God, we aren't just talking about the most powerful being in the cosmos. That's reinforced by the fact that there's all these very powerful disasters that happen at the mouth of the cave that Elijah is in, and God is not in any of them. He's not in the God is not in the storms, God is not in the earthquakes, God is not in the massive fire that takes place at the mouth of the cave. Instead, God is found in a sound of silence in this passage. Some translations say still small voice or a whisper. I prefer sound of silence because it seems to be a deliberative, a deliberate contradiction in the Hebrew. What is a sound of silence? God is not revealed in power, but in just being, in just being there. Less well known than either of these two stories, the burning bush story and the still small voice story, is my favorite vision of God in the Old Testament that tries to help us recognize that God is not the same thing as Bob. It's Ezekiel 1, 
which is sometimes called the chariot for reasons that are going to become obvious later. At the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, has been invaded by the Babylonian Empire, and the Jews have been forcibly relocated to Babylon. It was a harrowing journey, very much akin to the forcible relocation that we refer to as the Trail of Tears in our own country's history. In the process of their forced relocation, the Babylonians killed countless Jews and forced them into subjugation. They destroyed the temple, the place where Jews went to experience God's presence. The prophet Ezekiel, when he writes these words, is heartbroken, not expecting to experience God without a temple and in this strange and hostile land. And yet, show up is exactly what God does. Here is how Ezekiel 1 begins. In my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel goes on to describe the appearance that he sees. He, see, he describes it in these terms. He sees an immense cloud with a fire in the middle. And in the middle of the fire is something that looks like four creatures. Creatures that are animal-human hybrids of various sorts. Keep in mind, this is a description of God that he's giving. And those four animal-human hybrids have descriptions that don't make sense. They have four faces, but one head. Each face the face of a different animal, and they all have four wings. Their wings all touch, and they move forward without turning to the right or to the left. These things also look like torches. Fire is moving back and forth between these four creatures. Keep in mind, this is a description of God. The four creatures are moving straight ahead without turning, but they're also described as dashing from side to side, so there's something weird about their locomotion. They're also on top of a wheeled conveyance with four wheels, hence why this passage is sometimes called the chariot. The wheels have wheels within the wheels. So God's ride has spinners or something like that. And the wheels within the wheels have eyeballs on them. Oh, and they're all animated by spirit. Remember, this is a description of God. I'm sure you get the idea. I won't continue to describe Ezekiel's vision. But here's how Ezekiel ends his description of the vision. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say this was God. Rather, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. We're like four steps removed. I often read the passage in full to my students when we're talking about who and what God is, and I ask them this question. When they were young and they heard about God for the first time, and they went to a trusted adult, a parent, a priest, something like that, and asked, who is God, or what is God like? I asked them if they ever got Ezekiel's description in this vision. And they all say no. 
None of their parents ever told them that God is four creatures on a chariot with eyeball wheels in the middle of a fire in the middle of a cloud. Go figure. I ask them then what they think Ezekiel is getting at when he does this. And most of the time, someone responds with, well, he's probably trying to call attention to the fact that he, as a human being, can't really adequately describe the reality he's experiencing. And I think that's probably right. I give you these visions of God because the leader's theme for this week is the call to believe. To believe that we are created in the image of God and shaped by Jesus. I haven't focused so much on the shaped by Jesus part of that. I've mostly just focused on what it means to believe in God. I think that's important because so many of the obstacles that we experience to belief in God in our time come from a misunderstanding of who God is. They often come from confusing God with Bob. These visions of God from the Hebrew Bible, on the other hand, give us an awesome and infinite God to contemplate, one that is beyond description. They shake us out of the temptation to think of God as just a big dude out there in space, out of the tendency to confuse God and Bob. And so I hope you get a chance to contemplate God at some point during this Lenten season, to clear space to encounter this God. And if you have any more questions on what that means, we're going to have sharing time here, so that um, will hopefully help clarify some things. But also, uh, if you want any more resources to read, I have some to, that I could recommend on, in that regard. So, thank you. <laughs>